We are in um, week two of um, uh, the Bible doesn't say that. Last week we, we looked at, um, what did we look at last week? Anybody remember? Everything happens for a reason. Very good. You got an A. Whoever that was, you get an A for the day. Have another sandwich. Um, or, or a Twinkie. Mary Kate's still here. Mary Kate, when you, she's talking to the board chair. When Mary Kate, when you said the Twinkies are nostalgic, I felt old. I couldn't, I, that's. Oh. <laughs> Did you hear what she said? Well, you are though. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have two Twinkies, Mary Kate. They're good for you. Uh, what, what was I talking about? So last week was everything happens for a reason, and we had a lot of fun with that. Well, fun. We got into some pretty serious topics with, with that tonight. Um, let's go ahead and put that first slide up. Up there is love the sinner, hate the sin. I think the first time I heard this phrase was right after we moved back to San Francisco in 1974. My father had just become the pastor at the senior pastor at First Christian Church in San Francisco, uh, right on the edge of the Castro District, if anybody knows uh, that area. We're, uh, technically, we were in the DeBose Triangle. Anybody been to San Francisco? Have you been on Market Street? If you go southwest on Market Street and then turn right on DeBose and walk two blocks up the hill, you would be at the church where, um, where my father pastored for 13 years, where Julie and I got married. And it's still there, a little church, maybe 20 or 30 members struggling to survive, but they're, they're still trying to, to keep on. Anyway, we're on the edge of the Castro District, and I, I, if you know San Francisco, Castro District back then was well-known well known for being a large gay population uh, as a part of that, that neighborhood. And I'm pretty sure it was my dad. I, I can't say absolutely certain, but I'm pretty sure it was my dad who said, well, now we need to love the sinner and hate the sin. And as a, I was like 14 years old or something like that, I thought that kind of makes sense. Of course, we, we, we don't like the sin, but we, um, we care about whoever the person is. And I'll say some more things about why that's not such a good thing. And so that was sort of our approach. We got there. We'd been there about six months. And, and in fact, my, my dad's theology was, was changing tr- tremendously from uh, where, where he was in the 60s. Although in the 60s, he uh, left a couple of churches after just a couple of years uh, through the 60s because he, he quoted this radical person who got him in a lot of trouble. Anybody guess who that was? Martin Luther King. Uh, he got, there was a couple of called board meetings over, why are you quoting that, that man from the South and all, all that stuff. And so his theology really was starting to emerge and change. By the time we got to, to San Francisco in the 70s, my, my dad's uh, view on, on homosexuality, on the gay lesbian community, etc., um, hadn't shifted much. But what started to happen? Can you imagine? There were people in our community who, who happened to have be, be, be gay or lesbian, et cetera. Um, and my mom, uh, who was a kindergarten teacher, hired an aide in the fall of uh, 1975 uh, who, was, who was very open with her about his sexuality. He happened to be gay. Uh, his name was Richard. She would tell you to this day, she, he was the finest age she ever had as a, as a kindergarten garden teacher. She taught at the Jewish Community Center. So even then, even that kind of tells you our family is starting to evolve and emerge in, in, a, in a more open and uh, an affirming kind of a way. And then one day, this, this part of the story is embarrassing to tell you. <clears throat> I, I think I was a, a sophomore, maybe it was my junior year, the start of my junior year of high, of high school. And, and we're, we're driving home from church. And one block from our church, there is a couple, two men holding hands while we're stopped at a stoplight. They stopped to embrace and then a quick kiss on the cheek. And I made, I, I'm embarrassed 
forgive me, I was 14 or 15 years old, I made a, a stupid comment. I said, hey, why don't we get a gun? I can take care of this problem real quick. And thank God for my mom who turned around. She was in the front seat with my dad, turned around and looked at me in the back seat and said, I want you to know something. My aide, Richard, is the finest aide I've ever had. Not only that, he and the love that he has for his partner are everything, every bit as important as the love your, your father and I have. And you will never talk that way again. I told that story at the General Assembly of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in 2013. I was the keynote speaker, the opening night preacher uh, for the General Assembly with 5,000 people in the audience. And I told that story and I ended it because uh, four days later, we were going to vote on the full inclusion of pastors who happen to be from the LGBTQ community, that they could, be, they could be recognized as pastors in the Disciples of Christ Church. So when I told that story, I, I got to that point, and the place went quiet, and I said, my mom's been here for 40 years. Can we catch up to my mom? Um, that's one of the few times I've gotten applause in a, in a sermon. <clears throat> so, I, now the, the, so the context, though, is... When I first heard it, and first heard that phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, which it should be up there in front of you, it was, it was spoken in a sort of, well, we're emerging, we're evolving, let's, let's not be so particular, let's, you know, we need to love people and love who we, who we're running into, and, 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 and that was the way I heard it originally. I don't think that was really the best thing to say. And I would say today, it's a terrible thing to say, we're going to get a little bit more in, into that. So first, let's do this. Let's define sin, okay? Anybody wants to, uh, within reason, how would you define sin? Just say it, raise your hand and then say it real loud. Larry? Stuff that separates us from God. Stuff that separates us from God. Good. Somebody else? Missing the mark. Missing the mark. Very good. Departure from what God wants us to do, okay? What else? Yeah. Uh, Hilda got it on, on, on what the Bible teaches. I mean, those answers are all good. Uh, the Bible uses a word in Hebrew called chata. The Greek word for it is amartia. Both of them get translated as sin. They literally mean what Hilda said, missing the mark. In fact, it's an archery term. Let's say that now open sign is a target, and I've got a, a bow and arrow in my hand, and when I let that arrow go, if it hits one of those red T-shirts... I've committed a kata. That was my target. And that's, the, that's the, the primary word that is used throughout the Old Testament especially. Amartya then in the New Testament has a similar meaning. Here's another way to think about that though. If I made a promise to Julie on June 23rd, 1979, she was only 10, um, <clears throat> at First Christian Church in San Francisco with my father leading the ceremony for us, if I made a promise to her that I will love her throughout my days, and I failed to do that, I've missed the mark. A couple times, maybe not more. Uh, 44, 40, what's the joke? 44 years, 28 of them happy. Um, that's, 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 that's a really old, bad, bad joke. But you see how, see how this works? Chata means, literally means to miss the mark. If you know what you're intending to do, and yet, for whatever reason, you miss that mark, that's, that's a sin. I don't want this to sound judgmental or anything, but just recognize how this is something that all of us have to deal with at one point or another in our lives. By the way, at the 9 o'clock service when I was doing the welcome, I was talking about the, tonight's uh, class, I, I asked them, the, there was about 120 people at the 9 o'clock service, I said, how many of you have never committed a sin? Exactly three people in the back, right where Lois Zook is sitting right now, raised their hand. 
I can't tell you who, one of them was Buck Byrne. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and I give, I give him a bad time afterwards. All, all you have to do is check with the family member to find out whether or not that's really true, because usually we can, we can tell. So that's, that's the primary word, is to miss the mark. If, you're, if your neighbor is in need and you fail to care for your neighbor, you've missed the mark. And the, the Old Testament would use the word for sin, for that sort of failure to care for somebody else. And not in a heavy, judgmental kind of way, but in a, hey, let's get reoriented. Who said some, Somebody said something about, uh, maybe, Larry, what, what did you say a moment ago? Separates us from God. So it's getting back in line with God in a sense. That's, that's what, kind of what Maggie said as, as, as well. There's another word in, in the Old Testament that appears a lot in the book of Psalms. It's, it's the word in Hebrew, avon. It literally means to be bent over. In the old, the old psalmists, the Hebrew poets, I, I believe chose that word because sometimes, it also can be translated as iniquity, which is a fancy word for sin. It, it sometimes when something we've done that's hurt somebody else or has hurt ourselves and it's our own stupid fault, you can feel bent down by it, can't you? Mike, if you broke a marriage vow or if you, you, you did something in, in, at work where you mistreated somebody or you can, you can, maybe not physically bent down, although I've met people in my ministry who have physical issues because of th- Things they've done in their life that they know was the wrong thing to do. <clears throat> I won't tell you those stories just to, to keep them out of the out of the conversation. So those are those are really the the primary words that you'll find in the in the Old Testament and in, in the New Testament. And by the way, um, the word avon appears for the first time in Genesis four thirteen. Can anyone guess the context of that story? What story that was? It's, it's not in the Garden of Eden. They've been, they've been expelled from the Garden of Eden. Cain and Abel. Who said Cain and Abel? Very good, doctor. Uh, it was over here. Nancy as well. That's two A's, two extra sandwiches for, for you as well. Yeah, it's Cain and Abel. And it's after, it's after he's killed his brother. And Cain says to God in, in the conversation they're having, as God is sending him out, out, out to uh, wander the, the land forever, uh, he says, my, my punishment, my sin. It's translated in English, punishment, but it's the word avon. My iniquity, my failure, my murdering my brother is too much for me to bear. Uh, it's, a, it's a powerful word uh, that appears mostly, mostly in, the, in the book of Psalms. <clears throat> All right, let's go to the next one. Uh, you see, I jumped ahead a little bit. It was, have you, have you ever sinned? Here's, here's how I want to illustrate this one, though. And, and so, please, have you ever sinned? Uh, some of you haven't. Some of you, this is amazing. Some haven't. Okay, because if you don't raise your hand, we're going to call you, Mary Kate's group, we're going to call you later and, and ask you about, your, about your sins. So here's another way to understand this as, as well. And, and this is kind of a controversial one whenever I've got, I did, a, I did a Bible study class when I was in San Diego on the history of sin. And it wasn't what people thought it was going to be. Um, they thought it was going to be, never mind. But it, um, uh, uh, here's the illustration. Let's say you're a parent. And you've got a six-month-old in the back seat, carefully put in the, in the car seat, strapped in, all safe, everything's secure. But the, the infant is kind of squawking and crying and fudging around and fussing. And you're just you're trying to concentrate on traffic. There's a lot of traffic. And you're trying to do, you know, take care of the kid at the same time you're driving. And so you reach down in the, in the, in the um, uh, diaper bag where you've got all kinds of supplies. 
Did you ever notice, by the way, the first diaper bag you bought when you were a first-time parent was like the size of half the size of your car? By the time you have the third or fourth one, it's like, oh, I've got his bottle here somewhere. Um, anyway, you're fumbling around that bag, try to find, you try to find the bottle, and as you turn to give it to the little one, you don't notice that the lights turned red, and you roll through and you hit somebody else. The Bible says you've sinned. That's a large umbrella statement, but it is a kata, an amartia. You didn't intend to hurt anyone. You certainly were just trying to care for your child. And like I said, the first time I taught this was after I'd taken a class in my doctor work, a doctoral seminar on, on sin in the Bible uh, called uh, hamartia, harmatiology. Um, and people really push back hard on that. I wanted to be really clear. It's not a, it's not a value statement or a judgment statement that, that, you know, boy, you can just sin left and right and you're going to be a bad person. But just to understand that sort of biblical idea that it really isn't about you're bad, don't be bad anymore. Rather, it's about, you know, paying attention to the things that matter. Uh, staying in line with God's will, whatever that might be for your life. And understand that in, in, those, in those kind of, of terms. All right, let's go to the next one. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. Robert Capon um, died a couple of years ago. He was a um, brilliant theologian, an amazing preacher. He, he was a spiritual searcher here back in the 90s and early 2000s. Some of you might remember hearing Father Capon. Um, yeah, Stuart remembers. Um, he was a very good friend of, of Dick Wings. I got to know him and his wife, Valerie, over some retreats and things that he led for me. And just a super guy. And, and he, he tells a story about a time a woman is arguing with him after one of his lectures and saying, it's just, is it wrong? Sinner, you, you can't have sinners in the pulpit. You can't have sinners in the, in the boardroom. You can't have sinners in Sunday school rooms. This, the, the church can't be overrun with sinners. And, and Robert went back to the first statement and said, if a sinner can't preach, who's left? I mean, who's left? Julie and I were with, with some friends on vacation a few years ago. And we got into one of those late night conversations about the meaning of life or whatever. I'm, I'm sure a couple extra glasses of wine helped to get really meaningful. Um, but I started talking about my dad, who some of you, maybe most of you now know, really struggled with addiction uh, throughout his life. Um, we knew once he got off the, the heroin that he was off because for the rest of his life he struggled with food issues. He probably weighed well over 400 pounds when he, when he passed away. I remember talking about my dad and some of the stories from San Francisco especially. That's when the drugs really, <clears throat> um, at least according to my mom, took over his life. If you've read the Matthew Perry book, my dad has some similar stories to Matthew Perry, especially in the, in the 80s. And I was talking about all this, and, and, and my friend said to me, doesn't that cancel out your father's call? And I quoted Robert Capon. If a sinner can't preach, who's left? Now, his addiction issues caused some really bad things. I won't get into some of that stuff. It's not appropriate for right now. Um, he dealt with all those things and faced all those things. But if a sinner can't preach, who's left? And the reason, reason I'm going with this at, at this moment is to be sure that we're understanding how hard that phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, can be heard by someone who's really struggling with addiction or other, whatever other issue it might be that we might consider to be a sin. It's, a, it's really a harmful saying, one that we, we want to keep off of our lips. Okay, oh, here, here, this next one is, is maybe the root of where uh, that phrase comes from. We can, we can blame Gandhi for it, although it's not what he meant. 
Here's a, this, is, this is as quoted in uh, Half Truths, Adam Hamilton's book. Hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept which, though easy enough to understand, is rarely practiced and is why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. Do you hear the truth in what he's saying? It's rarely practiced. I think if it, if it could truly be practiced in the way that, especially Gandhi intends it, it, it could work for, for sure. <clears throat> it just helps to spread the poison. All right, let's get into some, some, um, some uh, into the phrase itself. Next slide. Love the sinner. But wait, Jesus never called anyone a sinner. I, in my church in Kansas City had a, a, a small group, not a large group, but a small and vocal group of basically fundamentalists who'd been members of the church all their life and they'd sort of found each other and there's probably 30 or 40 of them who met in their own Sunday school class every week at 10 o'clock. They sang songs. They had a 30-minute message. It was kind of like they created their own alt- alternate church. It had been going on for 30 years before I, I got there. I said this once in, a, in the pulpit. Uh, Jesus never called anyone a sinner. I got a lot of emails that afternoon telling me, how could you say that? It's blasphemous. And I basically said, look, I've got the original text in front of me. You go see if you can find a verse. And if it's a verse that, that has that in there, like it's a paraphrase or it's a translation that you like, that might be fine. But I'm going to compare it to the Greek. And not a single person, of course, could find it because Jesus never anywhere calls anyone a sinner. Consider John chapter 4. Anybody know what that story is at the heart of that story? Anybody know? John 4. You're, you're four chapters ahead. We're going to get to that one in a minute. This is, the, this is the woman at the well in Samaria. And they're having a conversation about, about life and religion and God. And, and at some point, uh, she says, uh, um, I no longer have a husband. He says, that's right. You've been with five before. And the one you're with now is not your husband. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, you are an immoral woman. You are a sinner. You've been living a terrible life. None of that was there at all. No judgment, nothing, no condemnation, nothing. Now, for years, when I was in seminary in the 80s especially, I read tons of commentaries that basically said, oh, clearly she's a, a, want, a wanton woman. She's a woman who's slept around. She's, and it was all this sort of white European male fantasies. I mean that seriously that they've just had all these wild imaginations about what kind of woman this person must have been. Um, First of all, none of that's in the text. Secondly, if she's had that many husbands, she's probably been passed around. In that society, if a man wants to divorce you, what does he do? Write you a note. Hi, you're done. And somebody, and, and how's she going to survive? She can't. I mean, she, she can become a prostitute. That's about it. There's no way for her to survive. So someone else comes along and marries her. She's being being passed around in an abusive kind of way. Throughout that entire story, Jesus treats her with absolute respect. He argues with her a little bit. He disagrees with her. He kind of pushes her on some things. Sure, but I would love it if I could have a conversation like that with Jesus, where he might argue with me or push me on some things. He's treating her as an equal as though her voice and her mind and her understanding matter. It has nothing to do with sin. All right, um, ne- next one. So who, who, somebody said, um, that was Fred, yes. Well, let me, let me get to it first. I'm not, 
I'm not, I'm not there yet, so hang on. I mean, I, I, you're, you're stealing my thunder. Here, take the mic and take over. <laughs> I'm gonna have an extra sandwich. So, uh, Fred, Fred was jumping ahead a little bit here. No, don't, don't skip the slide yet. Go back to the other slide. There you go, thank you. Just, just leave it there. So yeah, John chapter eight. That story is the one where a woman is brought by a group of men before Jesus and, and is placed before her because she was, quote, caught in the act of adultery. I read a website today, by the way, because sometimes I just am stupid, but it was, a, it was a very conservative fundamentalist website, and there was three paragraphs on how she probably was naked and why she would have been. It was just like, do you talk about adventures and missing the point? Um, that's not what it's about at, at all. <clears throat> She's brought by these men before Jesus, thrown in front of her, and then they say to her, what do you say we should do? You know the Torah? You know what the Torah says? What does the Torah say? Say again, louder. Stone her. What's the fuller quote from the Torah? Not just her. Both of them. Where's the guy? Probably in the crowd of men. That's my, that's my interpretation. Probably in the crowd, in the crowd of men. And Jesus, then, this is just such a dramatic point, and people love to speculate about this too. Jesus bends over and writes in the dirt. What is he writing? Anybody know? No, no one knows. Yeah, I, was, I wish you would just, you would have guessed. No, no, no one knows. I, I think he was writing something like, I should have paid more attention in rabbi school. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that's not what it was. And he looks up and says, let the one without sin throw the first stone. He just named the room, just like I did at the start. Uh, who's, who in this room has committed a sin? He just named the issue. And one by one, one by one, they leave the stones behind and, and they walk away. Jesus then says to the woman, where are they? Well, then neither do I condemn Fred, to your question, that's, my, that's where I think Jesus is making a clear statement. Neither do I condemn. There is no condemnation of her. Now, he does say, go and sin no more. So what happens if she's caught in sin the next day? What's Jesus going to say? I let you off yesterday, but I can't let you off today. No. No. In fact, that's the next story I want to look at. Well, not, not, not yet. Not yet. <clears throat> This is, this is from, from Adam's book. Love, when we say that I love the sinner, it's, it means I'm more inclined to focus on your sin. You see the problem with that? If I, if I, if I say to Hilda, uh, Hilda, I, 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 I love you even though you're a sinner. I, I, I love the sinner but hate the sin. I'm turning her into a sinner. I'm focusing that. And what, what else am I also doing for myself? I'm pointing at somebody else. We're not going to talk, you know, you know, I love the sinner, hate the sin, love you sinners, love you, love you sinners, hate, hate the sin. <clears throat> it's a damaging, terrible, difficult way to approach how we are graciously treat each other. It's used in, in more fundamental circles, and I mean this sincerely, to ostracize and separate or to have power and control. When Julie and I met, um, we met at a private uh, Christian high school. It was a boarding school. 
Julie was in serious trouble with the law, and they sent her to this boarding school. Um, you know, it could be true. Come on. Uh, there's a long story. Julie, Julie can tell you her, her long story. I can tell you my long story some other time, too, about how we both ended up there. Uh, but we both ended up in this school. And I remember early in that my first semester, I was there as a senior, Julie was a junior. In our first semester, um, we always had church. We, we had to go to church on Wednesday night. We had to go to chapel Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday morning. And then we had to go to church on Sunday morning and church again on Sunday night. It was a lot of church. <laughs> if you want to understand why my therapist made a lot of money off me, just ask me more questions about how much church got in, into my head with, with all that. I remember one Sunday night, they brought in an evangelist. Some of you heard me tell this story. Brought in an evangelist, evangelist Leroy Nightiever from Medford. Now, Medford was like this big town of 40,000 people far down, down the road. Leroy Nightiever came in from Medford, and he was preaching up a storm, and then all of a sudden he stopped. And, and there, now there's about 150 high school kids, maybe 50 faculty and, and, and other school administrators out there. And, of course, the boys sit on one side and the girls sit on another. And, of course, we have assigned seats so they can count everybody to make sure everybody's there in church like you're supposed to be. <clears throat> and Leroy, he just stopped and said, oh, the Spirit just told me there are young people here who are struggling with sexual temptation. <laughs> I'm sitting next to my best friend, Dave Trenum, who sang at our wedding four years later. And I leaned over and said, I didn't need the Holy Spirit to tell me that. What was that about? Was he being helpful? It's about power. It's about control. It's about putting you in your place. It's about making you feel like normal, natural feelings that are fine for 13 to 18-year-olds to be experiencing, absolutely part of growing up, somehow is wrong. And you carry that stuff in your head for too long for much, much too long. <clears throat> All right. Now let's look, at, let's look at a story. Go to the next one. From, from Jesus, Luke 18. This story, that's a parable of the Pharisee and a tax collector. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus. And you have to have kind of a religious voice here. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. I like that part. <clears throat> but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Remember what I said about saying in a sermon once that Jesus never calls somebody a sinner? One of those persons who didn't like me saying that sent me this text. I happily photocopied it and circled <clears throat> That phrase, where, or is it, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The only person calling somebody a sinner is the man who's being pointed at by the Pharisee. It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus pointing out this man's sin. And who went home justified? Now, here's, now here's the tricky part. Here, here's, the, here's the real tricky part. What happens if it's a week later? 
And there's the Pharisee giving all his, his tithe and all this stuff. Thank God I'm not like this guy over here. And the tax collector, he swore off the booze. He wasn't going to hire another prostitute. He wasn't going to do anything else. And he did it again and he did it again. And now he's back and he says this. You see, that's the challenge. Don't, don't try to answer that. That's the challenge that all of us face. Because maybe you're not hiring, maybe you're not drinking a lot or using drugs or hiring prostitutes. I hope you're not doing that stuff. All, all that, maybe not. But still, we, we have to wrestle with this thing. What we tend to do, and this is true of progressives and like us, and it's true of, of folks in the middle and folks on the far right. It's true of humanity. What we tend to do is find the other person's fault. Have you ever noticed, you ever been to a high school football game? And, you, and I did this with my buddies when I was in high school, sitting in the stands. You sit in the stands, and you make fun of everybody's walking by. You know, somebody goes walking by. I mean, I should, I'm confessing way too many high school sins. <laughs> you just make fun. Oh, can you believe, why is he wearing those stupid shoes? That's just ridiculous. Or, look, she looks terrible. You just make, what, what are you afraid of? They're going to do the same thing to you. And so you constantly, 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 constantly put the light on other, on other folks. The sad news is, most of us at one time or another do that when we're in our adulthood as well. Maybe not even intentionally, maybe not very often, but that's the really sad news is that too often we get caught in that Pharisee-like behavior who's pointing out somebody else all the time, hoping no one's going to look at him. I mean, I, I, I used to argue when I was in high school. I started thinking about this stuff when I was in high school, part of what my mom, because of what my mom said to me my junior year. I started thinking about, about this, and I, I still didn't really understand um, the, the full inclusion idea of, of, every, of all of God's children, including the LGBTQ community as well. Um, but I started thinking about how crazy it was that I heard so many sermons, not my, from my dad, but from like youth ministers and, and church camps and things like that, about how evil it was, how evil homosexuality was. And, and I could look at, you know, one of the guys... You could, you could just you could start naming all kinds of sins that they were committing, pride, envy, lust. You could name all sorts of other things, which never come up in the sermons because those are things they're struggling with. But they're happy. They're more than happy to point out their finger at, at, at somebody else and, and the issue that they're, they're struggling with themselves. What this, um, what this text also does is it highlights the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and it comes to you, and it's your turn, it's your turn to, to, to speak. You say, or I would say, if it was me, I would say, Hi, my name's Glenn, and I'm an alcoholic. And everyone would say, Hi, Glenn. Hi, Glenn. So the, the, the Rusty Bowers, who was the, the, um, the lay person at the church I served in Kansas City, who oversaw all of the alcoholic anonymous groups that we had, we had, we had groups on seven days a week. We had over 500 men and women who were members of those AA groups that, that gathered there. It was, a, it was the largest population of, of AA groups in the, in the entire uh, Kansas City area. So we put Rusty Bowers in charge of it so he can run the whole thing and, and coordinate it. And plus, sometimes the rules got broken or coffee pots were messed up, that kind of stuff. And he took care of all of it. He was awesome. When he died, I did his service. We had about 940 people jammed into a 800-seat sanctuary. Most of them were his friends. Many of them were, were alcoholics. And I, and I just said to the group, I just said, I just, one of the things I love, and I would visit their groups on occasion. Rusty would invite me to come, and with the permission of everyone in the group, they'd let me join their group and hear their stories and all that. I just, I said, I love how open and honest everyone is. When somebody says, my name's Glenn, and I'm an alcoholic, everyone says, hi, Glenn, and there's full and total acceptance. I said, I think I'm going to try that in the church someday, only I'm going I'm to change alcoholic 
to sinner. I'm going to stand up in the church someday and say, hi, I'm Glenn, and I'm a sinner. All 900 people said, hi, Glenn. It was one of the coolest moments I've ever had in a, in a worship service, especially in a, in a funeral service. It was an amazing thing. That's what this story is from Jesus is saying. It's, it's, it's saying, yes, you, we need to call each other to accountability. Yes, I, I mentioned in the sermon on Sunday, Matthew Perry had a sponsor who was really amazing with him, helping him deal with um, his issues and his anger issues and, and all that, and then, uh, then also looking at his own things. Of course, of course, of course, of course. And if Matthew Perry fell off that and got drunk o- over a couple of days, but then showed up at his AA meeting, what are they going to do? They're going to say, hi, we're glad you're here, and we love you. <clears throat> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much more difficult approach to take than the judgmental one. All right, let's go to the next text. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm not going to get too much into the uh, atonement theology, which is sometimes um, misused in light of this this text. I'll do that some other time. Maybe do a fancy Bible word, Bible study or something. But I I love this text because it, it, it says it wasn't when we got cleaned up. It wasn't when we got rid of all those thoughts that Leroy Nidever was sure we had in our heads. It wasn't when we stopped the booze or the, or the, or the drugs or the or other stuff. The fact of the matter is, when my dad was at his lowest, at his lowest point, Jesus still loved him. And I can't tell you how much that helps me. Because sometimes, when I saw what he did in our family, it was hard for me to love him. But I know in my heart and my mind that Jesus loved my dad. And that he, when he appeared in the resurrection, he was welcomed with, with arms of love. And I'm sure all the pain and the sadness and the sorrow. And I had a therapist tell me once that my dad probably had uh, what he called a deep narcissistic wound. Uh, a hole in his soul that he spent his whole life trying to fill with drugs. And my, by the way, my dad never drank. He signed a, he signed a, um, a women's temperance union pledge when he was 13 years old. That he would never let alcohol touch his lips. And he, and he never did. The irony of it is my mom, who was a school teacher, who would oftentimes at the end of each semester get half a dozen bottles of wine from parents saying thank you and, you know, or, or Merry Christmas or Happy Hanukkah or whatever it was for, for her. My dad would find those and he would open up and dump them down the sink. I mean, the, the irony is, is hilarious. <clears throat> but the great, the great gift that Paul is highlighting, that Paul wrote Romans, the, the letter to the Romans, what he's highlighting for us here is it's, it's while we were, not when we cleaned up, not when we got... I got ourselves looking good. Not when our resume was all put together. I'm talking the, the, to the um, uh, governing board tonight about the difference between resume values and eulogy values. We'll get into that tonight at, at the board meeting. When, you're long, when we're young, we want to build those resume values. Look at me. Look at, how, look at all the things I've done. When we get older, what, what do you want? We want eulogy value, values, as in what are they going to say when I'm dead? That's going to matter a whole lot more than, well, he won an award in seminary, or who, who cares about all that? It's not when we get cleaned up. It's not when our resume looks great. It's not when all that stuff's been put together. It's while we were at our worst. Christ was still there for us. Jesus was still there for us. The Spirit was still there for us. And the reason I I hammer this is I probably had a thousand or more people in my 35 years as a senior leader in my office who've come in struggling with these kinds of issues, hearing those old tapes. Did you hear the sermon illustration I used a couple Sundays ago about a gay man 
who, who had finally found his way to a progressive, open, and loving church, accepted him as he is, and yet he still couldn't get those tapes that he heard for the first 18 years of his life. You're bad, you're gonna go to hell. You're bad, you're gonna go to hell. And he was convinced it was true. Well, I'm starting to preach a little bit, so I'm supposed to be teaching, but I'll, um, I'll, 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 I'll say this. You cannot know or even begin to know how important this church is. I, I, I had a mother of a trans kid come up to me uh, last summer after I got back from, from sabbatical. And I, I don't I remember exactly what I dealt with in the sermon, but it was a sort of same kind of thing, accepted and loved for who you are. And she had tears in her eyes, and she was saying, my son was sitting next to me. Um, uh, he's transitioning. His, his new name, I don't remember her name, but she's now, now a, a woman. And he's, he looked at me and said, I could come to this church. This is a church I want to attend. This is a church we got to come back to. Uh, he lives out of state, but when, every time he's come back to state, his mom has contacted me and let me, uh, back to church. His mom has contacted me and let me know. Think of that. Think of that, what that means. The, the suicide rate among trans kids is, I, I believe, if it's not the highest, it's one of the highest in the, in the world. What we say here matters so much. While we were who we are, Jesus died for us, loves us, and is, is present for us. All right, let's go to the next one. So what did Jesus say? Well, he said, love your neighbor. He didn't say, love your neighbor, the sinner. He didn't say, love your neighbor who's got a serious issue with keeping the grass looking nice. He didn't say, love your, love your neighbor who, who stays up too late and has too many lights shining late, late at night. He didn't say, love your neighbor who voted for the wrong person. He didn't say, love your neighbor who, who whatever. No, he said, love your neighbor, period. And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember the Good Samaritan story? The, 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 the priest and the Levite come by. They pass on by because they've got too much to do. The Samaritan is the one who stops. He's, he's uh, take out Samaritan and put Taliban. The Taliban guy comes by. He stops. He bandages up the, the person, takes him to the hospital, pulls out his American Express card, pays for all the bills, says, keep the card. As they come in, you can keep them going. And Jesus looks at his crowd and said, who is the neighbor? It, there, there is no one who's not your neighbor. There is no one who's not our neighbor. And then make sure we understood that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, oh, and by the way, love your enemy as well. There are no options here as far as Jesus is concerned. Um, have, you, have you heard the, the, um, the indigenous person's uh, tale from, I think it's from North America, uh, about how the world was created or how, where the world sits? And it sits on top of a large uh, tortoise. Is that, am I saying it right? I think it is. So it's a tortoise. There's this huge, gigantic tortoise, and that's what the earth rests on. It, they, most people in antiquity believed the earth was a giant disc. That would help to explain some of the roundness that they, they could see. And they thought it was a giant disc, and well, it rests on the back of a tortoise. Well, what does that tortoise rest on? Another tortoise. Well, what does that one rest on? And the, and the father looks at, this, at the child and says, it's, tor- it's tortoises all the way down. Um, that's supposed to be kind of a funny line, by the way. <laughs> it's love all the way down. It's love all the way down. We, we, there's no options. Do we, do we, like a good AA group, sometimes have to call out one another? Deal with some issues? Absolutely. Love is not just open, do whatever you want. Hey, I still love you no matter what. No, no, no. Love is, is the willingness to call out, to face how we might be hurting somebody else. 
or how we might be hurting ourselves, while still continuing to love that person. <clears throat> uh, and, and so, like I said, Jesus, Jesus adds the enemy. Um, this, is, this is a tough one for me. Uh, this is, this is, I'm just going to confess a little, a little bit more. Until we had uh, children, I was a pacifist. I still am sort of, but let me explain it. Um, I, I, I would, if, if, I'd been, if the draft ever had come back, I would have refused to go, and I would have done so on, on religious grounds. Um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe that I could kill another person. I just I don't think that would be a, a right thing for me to do. If you disagree, that's okay. This is this is just, this is my my story. In fact, this week I was called uh, for jury jury duty, which was basically two days of sitting around, and then then our our, our group got called in. Twenty four of us. They were going to pick uh, 14, 12 jurors and two um, uh, alternates. And and there, the, an issue came up as far as what might be happening in the in the trial itself, and 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 the the, the judge said no, there's there's no death penalty connected to this, and so I I raised my hand and said could that possibly change, and he said no it won't. This is the only charge. It's this only um, uh, what's the legal term for punishment, whatever that is. I said good. Um, if they had said oh there's a chance this could become a death penalty case, I would have raised my hand and said as a follower of Jesus who was executed by the state. For God's sake, I, I, can't, I can't put my name next to the death penalty. I can't do that. That one's pretty cut and dry for me. But the pacifist part got challenged when one day, when our son Nate was about six months old, our first child, I was up in Anaheim at a church conference. Julie was at, in San Diego. She'd gone, she'd gone to work. I dropped off Nate on the way to the church conference with, with our child care folks. And Julie picked him up afterwards at five, walked into the, the house. Nate started to scream. I mean, just scream, which wasn't necessarily unusual. <laughs> but it was a, it was a high pitch and a, a, there was something else going on. And then Julie kind of looked around and said, oh, every drawer was open. Every cupboard was open. There was stuff thrown all over the floor everywhere. She looked around and she saw that the window had been jimmied open and pushed open. Um, so she immediately called 911, and sure enough, we'd, we'd, we had been robbed. It, it eventually, they eventually caught the guy, which was really good news for us. But what did I do that night and then every night while we lived in that house? I had a baseball bat next to the bed because I, I, I got to take care of my baby. I got to take care of his mom. So this, this, is, this part, I'm just telling you, I'm just being true confession here. I struggle and wrestle with that to this day uh, about how do we... Uh, rightly protect ourselves, our neighbors, uh, etc., um, and still follow in the way of Jesus. Um, it's a good conversation for us to have sometime uh, later. Okay, I'm going to give you some time for questions here in, in just just a moment. Uh, okay, go to the next one. This is the worst part of that phrase: "Love the sinner, hate the sin." It's used to attack and it's used to to judge. Um, it's, a, it's a way of separating out. It's a, it's a way of highlighting someone else's problems, which we've already kind of talked about uh, a, a little bit. If you, if you noticed, if, if you noticed the, we, don't, we don't spend a whole lot of time on, 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 on sins that aren't ours. And if you, if you also, if you noticed this too, there was some, a recent survey was done that for the people who believe there is a hell where you'll be sent and punished for not believing the right things or doing the wrong things, Less than 1% believe they'll go there. Who's hell for? It's for other people, not for me. 
All right, one, one more. And I, I wanted to make sure we put some stuff out here about this. Um, I, I hear all the time, oh, not all the time, not as much as I used to. When I first came here, um, I got a lot of, uh, frankly, hate mail. Uh, because we're on TV, and I'm preaching this stuff on TV, and people see that, and this is before we were online, but we were on TV every week, and our, our, our TV ratings were much higher when I first got here. Um, you know, how, how can you teach this stuff? You're leading people to hell, etc. So I want to be clear about what the Bible doesn't say about uh, homosexuality, okay? Just in case you need some fuel for a conversation with people who challenge you on, on this. Number one, the idea of homosexuality did not exist in antiquity. If you could go back in time and say to Moses... Uh, who, is the, who is the traditional author of the Torah. Um, you know, this text you got here in Leviticus about two men laying together, um, uh, that, that's, uh, that's, that's not homosexuality, that's a whole different thing. He would look at you like, what is homosexuality? He had no idea. If you went to the Apostle Paul, who had similar comments about same gender sexual behavior, they have no idea about a homosexuality, that there's a separate sort of, um, uh, or, or, or differently defined um, sexuality. And by the way, too, I want to say this. I meant to say this when I started this, this section. I recognize that homosexual is not a very good word to use in terms of how it defines folks in the LGBTQ plus community. It, it really doesn't. And it also kind of can even be a demeaning word. I'm saying this to you tonight in this study, though, so you can, you've got some, some bullets here for, for sharing with friends who, who um, might have a different view than, than the one that, that is here. Uh, when did the word homosexual um, first appear in the English language? Anybody know? In a rough time span. 1970s? 1980? 1800s, yeah, about the mid-1800s, like 1848. The word appeared in, Ger- in the German language, um, and it, it was translated quickly in, into English. So prior to the 1800s, that, the word, not only did they not know the concept, the word didn't exist. It was created... Um, uh, by, by a group of doctors, if I remember what I read today clearly. Um, the, when does the word homosexual first appear in the Bible? In, in English, sorry, I should say, in an English translation of the Bible. I'll, I'll buy you a steak dinner at the Avenue if you, get the, if you can guess, guess the... It was a good translation. It was a progressive translation. Uh, it was called liberal back in the day. Uh, I've got a copy of it. I've got the... Fourth iteration of it, uh, the Revised Standard Version in 1946 was the first one to use, to, to use it. Um, th- then the last thing that the Bible does, uh, is, is also clear, I want to be clear about this. The same gender sexual behavior that's named in the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is abusive behavior. It is about power and control and abuse. It is not saying a loving relationship between these two people is condemned by God or an anathema or whatever other fancy word you want, you want to throw out there. It is, it is about power and control. And it, they are abusive relationships. Um, that's what's being named. That's what's being called out. And it would, to put a little nuance on it, um, especially in, in uh, um, you know, thousand years, 1500 years before Jesus, um, there was an understanding that, that sexuality was not only for pleasure, read the Song of Solomon, which I read a lot when I was in junior high. Um, it's, it's, it's just frank and open and, and, and beautiful in, in its way. Uh, but there's also this understanding that, that uh, marriage and family and, sex and sexuality uh, were for um, creating more, more, more humans. 
if you're, if you, 90% of folks in, in antiquity were uh, um, uh, not rich and you needed more kids to help you work the farm or work whatever it was you did, et cetera, um, plus the birth rate, the, um, the death rate for newborns was pretty high as well. So, so that's, that's the culture in which it goes. And so don't be offended by this. It was, it was considered a sin to waste semen. Yeah, if you want to put a quote on Facebook tonight about me, <laughs> Glenn just said, 1,500 years before Jesus, it was considered a sin to waste semen. Uh, let me know how the comments go on that one if uh, Facebook doesn't flag it. All right, it's about 10 minutes? Yeah, about 10 minutes or so. Any questions you've got? What, what's that? If you want to. You just, have to be, you just have to be clear that it's not me saying that that's, that's wrong. It's, it's, I'm telling you what folks used to believe a long time ago. Have you, anybody seen the Monty Python movie, The Meaning of Life? There, there's a song. Oh, oh, we're being taped, aren't we? Never mind. Google Monty Python and The Meaning of Life. Watch the whole movie and get back to me and see if you can guess what the, what the, what the song was. Okay. Um, questions? Especially if you've got one that's just burning. You're not sure you should answer it, ask it, but you feel like you want to. Or don't want to, or you're afraid. Please, Shelley, was that a question, or were you just yawning? Okay. Please. So the question is, if the, if the sin is, is hurting someone else, but the person who's doing that and hurting somebody is somebody you love, am I understanding it right? How do you deal with that? There's a, a practical idea in the New Testament that says, you know, where two or three are gathered, there's the spirit of, of, of Jesus among them. The idea is you, you go with another person or two and sit down in as loving and gentle a way as possible and, and try to deal with the issue. Um, it, it's it's a really super hard thing to do, uh, I, you know. My 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 brother, um, his uh, one of his college, he played junior college basketball, and he played for uh, Alaska Anchorage. Um, his junior college basketball uh, coach was an alcoholic, and and Dave, who was an all-state player, a great athlete, was invited by a couple of the coach's family and members and friends to be a part of a um, what's that called? Where you intervention. intervention? Which there's some issues about that too, by the way. Um, but, uh, you know, my brother tells me a story of just hugging Coach Tandy and telling him how much he loves him and, and you know, we want to keep you around, Coach. Um, there's, there's different ways to, to uh, methodologies to use to do that. But that's kind of the idea is that you find someone. Um, Julie and I have had a couple conversations like that with, with people we care about. Um, it, it's, it's a really super hard thing to do. Yeah, that, that, that's, that is really tough. It's one of the reasons why we draw, around this church, we draw really careful boundaries. Um, we look at our, our employee handbook, and it's really clear about how we define sexual harassment and what that looks like. And it doesn't even have to involve touch or sexual behavior. It can just be uh, the way one talks or, or whatever. Um, so we try to draw really careful boundaries around that in order for this place to be safe. That's something we've worked really hard here in recent years is to ensure that this is a safe place where anyone can come. Um, and not have to be worried about being assaulted. Uh, I had a friend who was a Presbyterian pastor in New York. They had a member of their church who was arrested for um, uh, child molestation, spent five years in jail. He wanted to come back to his church. Imagine those, that conversation at their board meeting. 
they wrestled with it for uh, three or four months. They came up with a plan on how he could come back to church, where he could go, where he could not go, who we had to be with, who would be supervising him, and, and said, if you're willing to, to follow these steps, we will, we will welcome you back in the church. What was their primary concern? Keeping the children safe. I mean, if you come here on, on, a, on, a, on a weekday, you can't get into our children's wing. You have to be a parent who has a fob, and, and you, otherwise you're not going to get in. We've got it, we're almost full, uh, completely doing that now at South. It's about safety of the children. Those, those barriers are clear. Sometimes in the church we have to drop, put up very clear barriers about how somebody will behave or won't behave. And that's, again, that's not about making a judgment. It's about making space for that person and for the uh, safety of the children. And by the way, that man said, no thanks. Yeah, interesting. Larry. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Can you hear what he's saying? Hate's a lazy term. He said, you love the sinner, hate the sin. Uh, hate's a lazy term. You don't have to do anything. You can just hate him. Yeah. Uh, that's why I think, that, I think that AA model is so good that they really confront each other with behaviors and stuff while still loving and welcoming and, and, and keeping them a part of that, that circle. Yeah. Somebody else, any questions? Oh, please. Right. So, go ahead. First, give them my phone number. Um, no. The reason, the reason I, 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 I wanted to do this here at the end was because something I said earlier, I think I said it earlier, if I didn't, I meant to, is that I've heard this phrase uh, love the sin or hate the sin, used most often in recent years about gay, lesbian folks. And that, so I just think it was really important to put this out there, not, not because it's a sin or anything like that, but because there's so many people that, that, that use this phrase as a way of saying, oh, I know, you know, we love the sinner and we hate the sin. That, that, that's just, again, it's, it's, it's total BS, and I don't mean Bible school. Um, so the, the conversation, though, can, be, can, can begin, begin with some of those bullet points that I had at the end there as a way of saying, you know, do you know that the word homosexuality didn't exist until the 1800s? It was a foreign concept for thousands of years, um, in an, especially in antiquity. And then talk about the various things like Paul talks about. When, one of the descriptions that Paul uses about same-gender behavior between males is primarily about men, males, adult males raping boys. Um, there's no context in which I'm aware of that that's not a sin. 
that's not, it's not talking about a loving relationship between two folks. So that, that's, that's part of it. And then I, I'll, what I get when I talk about this, people will say, well, you're just, you're just, you're just interpreting that way because you, you, you just want to have those folks in your church. You don't want to deal with that issue. And so then I, then I like to go back and say, all right, it is an interpretation. Sure, I think I'm right. But does your church have slaves? I could write six sermons on what the Bible says about slavery, and it's okay. Does your, do the women in your church, are they required to wear coverings on their head? You know, what, and the answer will be, you know what the answer will be? Well, that's a different context. Ah, well, so you're interpreting. So there, there's a, there, yeah, it's a, it's a long conversation, but, but I, I'd, be, I'd be more than happy to talk more with you about, about some of the things you can, you can do, because it's, it's, that is an important word in our world today. So yeah, in no way was I implying somehow... Um, uh, LGBTQ folks are, 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 because of their orientation, are sinners. They're sinners just because they're sinners like everybody else. In fact, real, real quick story for you. Um, uh, a member of my church in, in, in San Diego uh, was a chaplain, an AIDS uh, chaplain, um, uh, AIDS hospice chaplain, great guy, had an MDiv, was ordained. Um, and then he ended up joining uh, the Metropolitan Community Church. Anybody ever heard of the Metropolitan Community Church? It was a primarily uh, gay and lesbian uh, members back in the 80s and 90s when those folks wouldn't be welcome in churches, etc. And I just remember saying to him one day, Randy, it must be great to be in a church where you don't have to have fights about these theological issues where everybody gets along and things are wonderful. And he went, oh, Glenn, you, you don't understand. The percentage of jerks in the gay community is the same as in the straight community. <laughs> just so we're clear. All right. Oh, one more. Last, last one. Let me summarize it for the folks watching online and maybe the people who couldn't, who couldn't uh, hear. Uh, Larry worked in inner city Detroit and the suicide rate among uh, gay black teenagers was around 35%. Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, it's a, that's, a, that's absolute truth. It, it really is. It really, it really is. That's why, again, that's why I think this church is so important and so amazing that, that uh, we put these issues on the table, we wrestle with them, and we keep our arms, uh, hearts, and minds wide, wide open. I got to go to board meeting. Um, let's let's have a prayer. Holy One, we're grateful that your love for us knows no bounds. We're grateful that your love for us is now and forever. We're grateful that in your love, when you see a stumble, you get down on one knee and you lift us back up again. It is for that love that we are grateful, not only in this night, but throughout our lives. Help us to allow your love not only to help us when we stumble, but to flow through us so that we too can help our friends, our neighbors, our enemies when they stumble as well. Amen. Night, everybody.